0: Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Hey there. It's Cece Stachora, host of Shots in the Back, exhuming the 1970 Augusta riot. Since we released the first episode of the show, listeners have been asking questions. Some people have had questions about public policy others asked about how we did what we did. Trial and error is the answer. None of us had previously made a documentary podcast about racism and history. And I personally knew I had some blind spots as a white woman. So my black colleagues and connections were integral to the success of this podcast. And that includes our editor, Kiyosha Howard. She and I caught up recently in a live virtual panel about the show. And one of my questions for Kiyosha was about being a Black news editor. She is one of the very few out there. This was a really, this is a personal and sensitive topic for you. And so how was it for you editing a white journalist as a Black female journalist? It wasn't
1: what I was expecting it to be. Um, And so I certainly was, um, was glad I was happy that you had done the work. I was happy that you had um, not tried to insert yourself into the story. You just wanted to tell the story. And, you know, you were open the entire time. You were constantly checking yourself. You were constantly saying, you know, I don't want to say this wrong. Or do you think that this might step on some people's toes? Like you were very self-aware, like you were very aware of your whiteness (laughs) um, in a way that allowed you to kind of step aside and be open to to suggestions and to be open to the editing process. And so I certainly enjoyed that. I think also for me, um, this gave me an opportunity to lean into what I believe about racism in this country and my belief that Black people are not going to be the solution to the issue of racism. It is going to take white people, white allies who also are championing the issue, who are also telling these stories. And so whereas in the beginning, I was a little apprehensive because I didn't know you, I didn't know you know, what your background really was or what you had done. And so I was kind of like, huh, I don't know. But um, for me, this was a huge win because I think that you really had a heart for it. And I think that that shows in the work.
0: It is something that, you know, having done projects on, um, you know, back in 2013, I did a couple of public events about, the research um, that I was doing when I was teaching it at Augusta university, which was then Augusta state university. Um, and I, I have looked back at some of that material and, and realized that I just, it's not that I didn't have a sincere sincerity, but the depth of my knowledge was so limited. I'm really, I'm really proud of myself for stepping back because I look at that and I'm like, you know, I, I kind of perpetuated some myths. I um, could have done a better job of not being a voyeur, which is, I think, one of the, one of the problems with um, white journalists covering issues about communities that are not their own is that we can come in and 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 say oh my gosh look at all this stuff um and I definitely was afraid that that was you know that there were elements of that um so I'm yeah I'm so glad that you were you were my editor and that you were and that we were able to to you know come together and 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 feel like we had a good trusting relationship was one of the things that you've said to me over time is that this has been um, this has been a really rewarding project for you. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Um, when I
1: learned about this story, I was like, wait, why don't I know about this? Why don't people know about this? Like, why isn't this a thing? Um, and so to be able to help bring the story to light was just like, oh, man, yeah, this is absolutely, like, we got to do this. We got to make this happen. Um, and so for me, it was partially just the education of it all, just learning about the the story, the story, stories themselves. But then there was also, like, getting into the meat of everything, listening to those interviews, like, all the great sound, um, listening to people like Claude Harris.
0: So our whole aim and intention was... Let's make change.
1: Here's an opportunity. But the whole intention was don't hurt anybody. It was just eye-opening for me in a way that um, you don't get, you know, especially on the editing side of it because, you know, unfortunately everything doesn't make it into the podcast. So there's some things that I got to hear, like, just behind the scenes that I'm just like, wow, you just look at life differently after working on a project like this.
0: Yeah, I think all of us feel feel pretty good about about this. Um, we heard from from people like like Claude Harris, um, but we also heard from Sergeant Lewis Dinkins. He was implicated implicated himself in three of the shootings that took place, um, and was put on trial but acquitted for the shooting of Lewis Nelson Williams. Why don't we play the clip from Dinkins now just to remind us all of who he was and what he sounded like? I turned and with the gun on my not in position, still on my hip. I touched off that head trigger and I got it right through the knees or knee I should say. When those shot hit him I knew I'd hit him in the knee because I could actually see red streaks. And anyway, they finally got him in the back seat, and he's bleeding like a slaughtered hog.
1: Me and me and Lewis, we oh my god, editing the podcast with C. Like I was hearing all of his little statements, and I was just like, oh my god, this man. Like, okay, I get it during a certain time there was a certain way that people thought about black people and as a police officer yada 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 blah 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 right but all these years later to hear him tell the stories again with no remorse with no type of um compassion in his heart or anything that was like you know i feel bad or even like Maybe it was a little bit wrong. Like there was just nothing there that said, you know, these people are human. Um, and so I-, I even wondered oftentimes, see, if it wasn't you doing the interview, like if I was there, would he even regard me with any level of respect or like, you know, or would he just treat me like I'm not even talking to you? Because that's just the way that he came off, like still, and I can't say still, because I know he's passed, off, he's passed on, but at that time, for it to be, you know, so many years after the riot, for him to still speak in that manner, I mean, it just disgusted me. I really, um, and, and listening to him, there were so many things where I was like, oh, this is terrible, but we got to put it in there we have to make sure that people hear this because this was really the heart and mind of someone who was involved. And so um, as as um, hurtful as it was to hear those things, it was also very necessary for him to be a part of the story. And it was also very necessary for people to hear what he had to say because, you know, I can hear that in the mind of a police officer now who kneels on somebody's neck for 10, 11 minutes. I can hear that now in the mind of a police officer who um, shoots someone because they're running away. Like, it, it just all is very real. And it's just a reminder that, you know, those mindsets don't go away over, okay, let me not say those mindsets don't go away, because I do believe that people have the capacity for change. Um, But it's not an easy change. And it's not an automatic change. It is an intentional change that, um, that people have to want to make and that people have to work to make. And it's obvious from hearing Lewis Dinkins all these years later that he was not one of those people.
0: Yeah. um, I think you're right that he He would have given different answers to you, and he may not even have been willing to give you the time of day because of how deeply that racism ran when i when I started interviewing him, I was doing uh, oral history interviews, and so that gave me a little more leeway to let people tell the story that they wanted to tell. But sitting across from that much casual racism and hatred, I definitely felt uh, just guilty that I wasn't calling him on that stuff. And what I came to was that by letting him speak and letting him Assume what he wanted to assume about me. He was speaking his mind. And that was better for the story, just as, as you said. It, it. I think he may have viewed this event as like his war story. And that mm-hmm. Black people in this event were his enemy. Mm-hmm. So... I just kept asking for more. And I was hopeful that underneath the hubris and the condescension and um, just hostility that, that there was perhaps an indication that this was a cover for something that had deeply hurt his heart um, you know in the way that some people kind of feign bravado when um, when they're actually scared and so just you know on that last little point that was me being hopeful that that white racism wasn't as um, as embedded that it wasn't um, that it wasn't so pervasive that, that if I just dug a few layers deep, it you know, I, it, would, it would be scraped away. And I don't want to say that I've ever thought that white supremacy and racism is shallow, but it just reminded me that these are very entrenched ideas, which, you know, again, goes back to basically what you were saying, Kiyosha. Um, we talked in episode six to uh, the Lincoln County teacher, Christy Bryan, and... One of the things that she said was she knew about this vaguely. She had heard from her mother that downtown had burned, um, but didn't know what had happened or why anything had happened, which is very, very common for the narrative at that time, as the news media was writing it and as white leadership was spreading it, was, you know dumb people did something stupid. And that was the end of it. So she was really thrilled to be able to put some depth to that event and understand what really happened. And she also talked about how she was intending to incorporate this into her Georgia studies class in the future. And I know actually that a a few teachers in richmond county schools will also be doing that and that's great at all but one of the things that she said was just that the teachers around her weren't comfortable with this history they were actually afraid to speak about it at all and so i just want to i want us to listen to one of her comments
1: I believe a lot of teachers are afraid that they might lose their jobs. As someone was saying to me last night, we walk such a fine line. And it's really uh, difficult to pacify everybody. And even though it's facts, this happened, uh, a lot of people are like, why do you want to bring that up? Why do you want to stir up trouble?
0: I find that, that question, why do you want to stir up trouble interesting? Because on the one hand, we're more than willing to talk about um, World War II, but on the other hand, we're not as willing to, or some of us are not as willing to talk about the civil rights uprisings.
1: Something that the teacher said was, um, you know, that it's hard to pacify everybody. And I think that, you know, that. That mindset, that mentality, is exactly the problem. Is that we've got to stop trying to pacify everybody. Um, just like you know, John Lewis said, "Good trouble." Like we we can get into some good trouble. Like there's a reason <laughs> that we should be waving a flag for certain issues. There's a reason why we should be putting our fists in the air for certain issues. There's a reason why we should put up a sign that says. Black lives matter, um, and and that we should be able to stand firm in the decision to do those things um, without feeling shameful because of what our neighbor might think. Um, You know, quite frankly, I would be looking at my neighbor like, "Well, you should feel shameful that you're not doing something, right?" Um, And so, I just I think that the mindset has got to change from trying to pacify people and trying to meet the needs of everybody. Guess what? It doesn't matter what your position is. Somebody's gonna have something to say about what you said. So you've got to figure out what is your conviction, what is the thing that you're willing to stand behind and stand behind it. I was on Twitter the other day and a a woman posted um, one of the questions that her child got in like a test, because you know, everybody's doing school from home. And the question was like, the Civil War hero rode up on his valiant steed and da 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 And she, you know, and she was a white woman. She posted it and, like, mentioned the company that made the test and was like, what is this racist propaganda (laughs) that you're teaching my child? We will not. And, like, the company came back and they were like, oh, we're so sorry. We're going to reevaluate our test. But I mean, even now, like even in the middle of everything that's going on, you have to pay attention because I mean, it's not in the curriculum. The curriculum is not telling the full story. Um, And so for me as a parent, I have a weight on my shoulder to make sure that I'm teaching my child certain things. Like my daughter will know the story of the Augusta riot and Charles Oatman because, well, for one, she, she's like, Miss C is your best friend now because you were talking to her every day for like three straight months. But also because like, I'm like, okay, this is a story you need to be aware of. So we're gonna sit down and we're gonna have some of these tough conversations. And so hopefully more parents will um, start to take uh, that initiative as well to say, hey, this is not being taught in school or that thing needs to be, there also needs to be some light shed on the other side of this story Um, And hopefully, people can really start to teach our children, um, you know, so that they're not looking at the world through rose colored glasses and thinking it's all unicorns and rainbows. Um, But the other thing, um, talking about, you know, if you shoot somebody in the back while they're running away, that's not like you, that's no way to look at that as being good. Um, But the painful reality of that time is that it was actually okay. For police officers to shoot someone in the back, it was okay as long as the officer was able to say, "Oh well, I caught this person doing a crime." The law actually said that they could shoot somebody in the back, and so um, I have kind of a, a morbid joke that my friends and I uh, say, which is that we're only one law away from *The Handmaid's Tale*. We're one law away from some crazy turn of events that would allow for terrible things to be done to people, you know, because at one time, slavery was the law of the land. At one time, Black people were seen as three-fifths of a person. At one time, a police officer was allowed to shoot somebody in the back as long as he said, well, that person did a crime. And so I think we also have to be careful about, you know, The idea that, oh no, that's wrong, that's terrible. Well, if the law says it's okay, somebody can get away with it. And if somebody who's a really smart and really good lawyer can find X statute and Y code somewhere in the (laughs) in a book, they can argue for why it's okay for that police officer to have done what he did. And quite frankly, why I think there are several officers who are sitting at home with their families right now when they probably should be in jail.
0: There are journalists who won't say um, that we live in a a white supremacist society um, because that to many is not a fact. But when you define white supremacy and then look at the research that backs up all of the ways in which black people are subjugated. There's no doubt. And I found myself hesitant to use that term because I was like, oh, I hear that little voice in the back of my head. There are people who are going to be like, well, this just shows that you're liberal. This just shows that you are not being an objective journalist. And we've We've done that in journalism with climate change. We call it climate change now instead of global warming, right? And that is to appease people who aren't even sure that it's scientifically valid. I don't want to get myself in trouble here, but it was, I think, a challenge to turn that off, to turn off that attempt to make everybody feel like they came out as a good guy in the end. So our time is coming to a close. We do have a few kind of miscellaneous questions that I want uh, to get to that our our listeners have, have asked. Um, And Kyusha, I think you have a couple of those. Yeah. Yeah, I have them.
1: Um, So I'll just jump right in with the first one. It is, um yeah I want to know this too. <laughs> what statute or policy was it that paid black students to study outside of Georgia?
0: All right, I have never found the exact statute. Um I have found several people who benefited from it. Uh this it it's also uh listed in the Georgia Encyclopedia which is run by the um uh, Georgia Humanities Council, and the Georgia Historical Society. And what they say is that this was a common practice and it, was, it wasn't until about 60 that the federal courts essentially banned states from doing this. 1962, if I remember correctly, is when we first, we see the first um, black students attending University of Georgia But there were only two for a really long time. So I'd be curious to know if that practice somehow continued.
1: That's a good point. Um, Another question. uh, The Richmond County Jail, was it as bad as described in the show?
0: Most definitely. By the mid-1960s, a grand jury um, had taken a – review of the facility and said it was inhumane and unsalvageable and they they made um, a, a Demand that the building be replaced now. I don't know the details of that well enough to know whether that came with a fiat um, That just kept getting extended, but I do know that it was Um, into the 70s, that they were still using that prison, that jail. And I actually got a letter from a a person who's an inmate over in um, the Atlanta area, who said that he had had, uh, lived in the Richmond County Jail on 4th Street in the late 70s. And it was exactly as described. The, um, uh, the year that that grand jury came, um, came to its conclusion is um, it's, it's like 1964 is what's come to mind.
1: Who did you intend for the podcast
0: audience to be? When I wrote the first episode, this was before Kyosha came on board. Um, I wrote it and then I, I, um, I looked at it myself and and I realized that I was speaking pretty much exclusively to white people. And so, you know, and I've talked about this this before, I, I then, you know, brought it to a friend of mine and um, she's black and she was like, okay, you're using way too many, like, look at all of the white voices that you've put here. And I was like, oh, but I just wanted to use archival tape. And she was like, yeah, but you're prioritizing the voices of people who didn't speak to any Black person about why this happened or what was happening. Just a lot of white officials who said, well, I think some outsiders came in. Um, so I think but you and I, Kyosha, have had a couple conversations about how the public radio audience is primarily white and primarily older. And so... I wanted that it to be accessible for that audience. But I also wanted it to to speak to a much broader audience, to people of color who, who, my understanding is that there's a lot of times when white journalists or mass media, mass news media in general is telling a story as though, um, you know, we're you know it's it's uh, Cinco de Mayo and the and and we're doing a story about what is Cinco de Mayo, and that kind of a story is pinned directly toward white people, right? I mean, no one in the Hispanic community is asking that question, so right. I think with your help, I, we we made this into something that um, had enough. Um, code switching for, for our white listeners who are maybe not, um, as informed, um, in black history, but not so much that it was a turn off to black listeners and other listeners of color. And I don't know. Um, it'd be terrible if you answered my question negatively, but I'm going to ask it. What do you think? How do you, who do you think we? <laughs> how do you think we did, and who do you think we were talking to?
1: Yeah, I'd have to agree with that assessment. I mean, I um, I, I kind of towed this line myself on wanting to explain things to white people, but then also not wanting the sh- to shoulder the burden to be the person to have to explain it all um and also to have you know the clear <laughs> understanding that i'm not the voice of all black people right and so um you know i think that we did a good job of balancing out the okay let me explain to you what this means and also just telling the story i think the story itself um or the stories because there's several stories within the larger story but um, just let the stories breathe and tell themselves uh, or tell themselves and let the people who were involved tell the story. And where there was the need for some bit of explanation, you know, we would add that in. Um, but for me, I think we were effective because we allowed the narrative to happen just it was very character driven and as much as it was narrated and kind of explained. So, um, you know, (laughs) I think we did a fabulous job.
0: My thanks to shots in the back editor, Kiyosha Howard, and now it's up to you. What are you going to do to keep the story of the 1970 Augusta uprising alive? So many of you have pointed out that this history mirrors the present, proving the adage that those who don't learn history are doomed to repeat it. So what will you take away from what you have learned? Many thanks to the rest of our team. Rosemary Scott, Jesse Neiswanger, Autumn Rose, Josephine Bennett, Don Smith, Grant Blankenship, Lars Lonroth, Shaniqua Dickens, and Nefertiti Robinson. Our theme was composed by Tony Aaron Music. Gary Dennis is the executive director of Jesse Norman School of the Arts. Sean Powers is Georgia Public Broadcasting's director of podcasting. This podcast is funded in part by a South Arts grant. Please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And for show notes, visit gpb.org forward slash shots. Thank you for listening.